Tanya Wolf. And I am Michael Waits. Welcome to the Money Makers Podcast brought to you by Sophia. Sophia is an exciting new learning platform for women with a goal to increase diversity and inclusion in early stage investing. This podcast is a finance, innovation, and investing show for amazing women everywhere of all ages. Each fortnight, we will feature an inspiring woman from the investing and finance sector or a female founder with a special focus on Asia. Our guest today is Amy Reed, a co-founder and the CEO of TechSembly. Amy, thanks for doing this today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's our pleasure. Would you like to give our listeners a little bit of your background for some context? Yeah, of course. Sure. So I was born in um, Scotland. I'm half Canadian, half English. I moved to um, Singapore 10 years ago. Prior to moving to Singapore, I um, studied in in Glasgow. I studied in um, business studies, specializing in marketing. And then after university, I went to to join BT on their graduate scheme. And I worked there for 10 plus years. After that, I um, went, we moved as a family to Singapore and I've been in Singapore for 10 years. And since that time, I've had a number of different roles. I joined here um, initially working for Facebook and then I worked for uh, an insurance company where I looked after their, I was a chief marketing officer looking after their marketing. And then I had my third child and I decided to go into what I've always wanted to do. My biggest passion is to start my own business. And I started that business seven years ago, a company called Gifts Less Ordinary which has since kind of pivoted. And now it is into tech assembly, which is where my core focus is, which is on the tech side of the business. Can we go back to um, BT for a second? So I like to say like very few people graduate from university and start building things from scratch straight away, right? There must've been either something amazing about you or about that program, but probably some combination of both, particularly inside big companies. Did you get the sense at that time that you were doing something unusual? So when I joined BT, it's quite funny. In the day, it was always when you're at university, the place where you wanted to be for marketing was you always wanted to join a graduate scheme. Now, BT is obviously is, is, a, is a very well-known and a large telecom um, business, and their kind of their core focus was on the marketing side of things. So I remember they, there was the intake that um, I had that year. They only took two marketing graduates from the whole of the UK. Yeah, and I remember going down for an interview. Um, I'd been asked for an interview, and I finally said to them, they, they said, look, look, you know, you've passed the interview, so there's no role for you here. Um, we've given one role away to a marketing um, graduate, and there's, there's no roles. But if one comes up, we'll um, invite you to come along. And so every day I just decided that one day that's that's the place I wanted to work at I thought it was really exciting they were involved in the technology they were involved in kind of like building like um, marketplaces it was um, the, the place I wanted to be so every week I would call the HR department saying have you got a role has that role become available and they would like go no to the point that they would actually laugh when I'd call they'd go oh here she is again and then I remember the best one was that we, I was reading a campaign magazine and the campaign magazine said oh, I'm looking for a replacement for the CEO of uh, consumer markets. Um, so I phoned them up and I said, I see a vacancies come available. And I remember them all laughing away. <laughs> and eventually, you know, that uh, role did come up and I, I managed to get that, go for another further interview and get that role. And that's where I started on the graduate scheme at BT. And what was it like building something internally there, right? It's almost like an entrepreneur, a word I don't like a lot. But what is it like building something from scratch inside of a big company, particularly when they don't think it's going to work from the get-go. Well, it was very, it was interesting because I joined a team which was um, 
called um, the Soho Small Office Home Office. I actually thought it was Soho was a region in, in London at the time. Um, but that's what I joined as a graduate scheme. And what we were building is we were building a marketplace to support um, startups, to support small businesses, to basically give it a marketplace where they could find their finance advice, their insurance advice, their telecom advice, all under one portal. So we actually built an exciting time because across BT, we were kind of like the innovation hub. So it was a small team, had an amazing boss who created an atmosphere where it's work hard, play hard. Like we were able at a very young age, I was able to kind of like be in charge of like third party partnerships, in charge of going out to to large corporates like Aon and kind of securing third party deals. So it was very um, innovative. Obviously, of course, that was the time, like and it goes so far back to pre the dot com boom, the dot-com, when we were still on dial-up internet. And obviously, nobody is going to go online to a marketplace portal when it takes you about 30 minutes for a couple of pages to load. So obviously, that didn't work. And then I was responsible for actually closing that part of the business down, which was very sad at the time, because obviously, that was um, pre-the launch of broadband, where things changed significantly. Right. So I should tell you this. When I joined Goldman Sachs, they were thinking about shutting down the business that I was joining. And it was a weird, it was a weird thing because I was coming out of a company where the same exact business was very successful. And we, I say we, because I did obviously did not do this alone. And I, that's one of my business tenants. I don't think anybody succeeds alone. We took that business from $8 million a year to $135 million a year and basically freaked out management because they never thought it was possible. But I'm not telling that story to say about me. It's just about what you learn in that process of going through things. When you look at an opportunity, right? So you said earlier, you wanted to do the thing that you always wanted to do, which was run your own business. So it sounds like you've always been quite entrepreneurial. Do you want to walk us through a little bit how you got from working at these big companies to starting your own company? So I had a lot of exposure. And I think even in the early days of BT, that little team that we worked with was almost seen as kind of like a mini incubator. Like we were able to kind of like to innovate, to explore And I got a taste for it. And I've grown up with an entrepreneurial family. So I've kind of seen from my parents, like, you know, the the highs and lows of being an entrepreneur. And it's always something I knew from a very young age I was going to do. It was just a case of finally when the time is right. I was so grateful for the time I had with BT and the graduate scheme because I learned a lot. Like I learned, you know, working with great teams, being able to live in London. It gave me the foundation I needed to kind of like to, to move on. The taste for entrepreneurial, I think, is something that's always there in you. And I think I remember there was a time in my path at BT, I, I hit kind of like what I say was a roadblock. I was promoted a few times quite quickly. And I remember going for an interview to, for my promotion. And I was supposed to get, it was supposed to be a walk in the park because I was, I was due it. And I didn't get that promotion. And um, what the, the reason being was, they said, the HR lady said, um, she's going too fast. She's going to hit a wall and break down. But yet a male counterpart who was um, a year older than me, obviously, but, you know, not doing the same role I was, got through. And I remember thinking at that point, I don't want to do this. This is not, you know, I'm not used to politics. I know what I want to achieve and, you know, I, w- I know what I wanted to go and do. And they said to me in the team, I said, well, look, that's it. I think, you know, time's right for me to maybe resign. And they said, look, look, you can go anywhere across the business, choose whatever job you want. And so I went, and I found a job which was in, in a team and I, and I, I really liked the team. Like it was a company called BT Answer Point. They were kind of like, it was seen as that project that everyone was dibbling around. It's not going to succeed. They, they've launched it in Scotland. It's, um, it's destined for disaster. But I saw like what I did. I believed in the product and I believed in the overall product. And the, the product was based on a new model that BT had never uh, taken on board before, which is all about generating new revenue streams through call completion and call stimulation. So BT Answer was a free messaging service. 
But obviously with BT owning 80% of the lines, there's huge significant revenues that can be generated there. So I said, that's what I want to do. And they laughed at me and said, well, you really want to go to that project? I said, I do. I said, you know, that's exactly where I want to go. And I remember going to the board and they said, you know, we're not, the trial's not working. They're going to have people migrating from our page for our messaging service. This doesn't make sense. And I said to them on the table, give me three months, three months to turn this around or I'll resign. And I, I you know, I, I just want a chance to prove myself. And what we did is we renamed it 1571. It was BT's biggest success story of the whole year. And it was a team of just myself, um, my boss who was a technical side, I was marketing, and one graduate who I recruited. And all those people who kind of said, you know, this is something that's not going to work are all those who took the glory because we were able to generate Naturally. millions. Naturally. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Standing up in the, you know, the best campaigns we ever did across the UK, won, won a number of awards. But yeah, I think when you have a belief in something and you're passionate about a product, that kind of like, it was, it's a great experience because that team was kind of overlooked. So we were able to be a bit maverick. We were able to do what we wanted to do to kind of like to deliver results. And it did. And you know, when sometimes you take a team out of the big corporate structure and all the kind of like the politics, you have that ability to really deliver something excellent. And so entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial side of me has always been there. Right. And I always wanted that, that there was always going to be a time that I wanted to put my money where my mouth is and deliver for myself something that I was passionate about. And I knew I could turn and, and deliver great results for very tenacious. Yeah, very. This is a little bit of a <laughs> philosophical question for me, but when you identify a market gap, which you clearly did there, how do you determine, and you did it with gifts less ordinary as well, we'll get to that too, but how do you determine whether you need to start a business to fill that gap or if there's just a gap there that can't support a business? I always think if there's a gap there, there's a way to fill it. And the way to fill it is to, to innovate. I think if you're looking at existing solutions and they haven't filled that gap already, then there's a problem. So for me, what I always want to do is if I see a gap, I know there's a way to kind of fill it. And that's what I, I spend my time trying to, is it something I'm passionate about, trying to solve that problem? If so, then I'm going to go after it. Got it. So talk to me about the genesis of Gifts Less Ordinary. What is it? Why did we start it? What was that gap that you saw? So Gifts Less Ordinary was, um, is, is a global marketplace that brings together kind of like personalized, unique gifts from across the globe. I recognized after having my third child in Singapore, I realized that, look, it's very easy to get like, you know, high-end brands, like kind of like your Pradas your, or, your, or your kind of like your, your chains like Zara and everything out here in Asia. But what you don't see is what you get a lot across in Europe, um, which is like artisan. So like, you know, unique products, personalized products, handmade things. So I decided that what I wanted to do was to bring those brands to Asia. So I built a, a global marketplace and my focus was to not just be on Singapore, but to look across borders. So I wanted to have a storefront in Singapore and I wanted to have a storefront in Hong Kong. And I wanted the store in Singapore to bring together great Singapore artisans with the international brands that haven't been seen here before. And then Hong Kong do the same, you know, like support Hong Kong brands with international brands. So that was kind of like my unique premise. I realized that the, in these markets, there's a real opportunity to kind of like bring brands that haven't been seen here and launch them into Asia. So that's kind of like where Kif's Less Ordinary um, first came from. This is also where Amy and I met maybe three years ago, four years ago. Four years ago. Four or five, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Time, I'm losing time. track of time. I'm still 28. Um, and, <laughs> and we met through a mutual friend who introduced us as a, a, for potential investment. I wanted to make an investment and um, started to meet with Amy. I remember our very first meeting over coffee. Might have been lunch, actually. And I remember thinking, 
all the things that I've just thought about listening to you again, talking about your career, which is tenacity. And, and I knew that whatever you did, whether it was continue with Give This Ordinary or spin it off as you've done, which I'm sure we'll hear about in a minute, I knew that it was going to be successful. And I think that that's one of the biggest learnings I've made as, a, as an investor is believing in that feeling. And I'm so glad that with you, that that's actually paid off for me and also in the personal relationship. So I liked you from the, from the start. So I think that also helps significantly with um, making uh, an investment decision, particularly in the early days. We spent a lot of time together. We did. A lot of business trips. Um, and a lot of calls and, and time in the office together as well. So it was, um, so, but tenacity was something that stood out to me as something that uh, you talked about um, when you were at BT and you had this opportunity, um, but not everyone would have put themselves up for that bad kind of team that you, you, you know, you suggest the 1571 group was not, um, you know, a team that people wanted to be in and not every, and most people, you know, would have shied away from that thinking that it was career suicide. And there you were throwing your hat in the ring, you know, and I think that that's obviously been with you for a long time. And it was something, it was one, one of the things that I saw very early on in you. So I'm so glad that we still have this working relationship. Oh, I know. I'm so glad too. I think I remember the first time um, after you invested, we went to Hong Kong on a trip and we didn't really know each other personally at all. And obviously my, my Scottish roots were like, you know, Tanya, we have to share a bedroom. We're not paying for two bedrooms. We can't afford that on the budget. So we we had to share a room in this um, in this hotel in Hong Kong that had a leaking bathroom, <laughs> and we kind of got, we kind of got to know each other very quickly, very early on. And I think we realised that you know we got stuck in, and, and that the support's there. And I think you know that's great to have kind of like this um, ecosystem where you bring together kind of like women who support one another, who genuinely support one another. I think that's the most in, you know the most important thing, and I think that's what we um, I'm very grateful for. Same. So you started Gifts This Ordinary, you had the vision to grow this marketplace. And did that work out as you thought? Like, or where did that take you? Because obviously now we're looking at a spin-off business, which is pr your primary focus. So how did you get from one to the other? I know the answer to this, but I think it's a really interesting story and something that I retell a lot of people as well. I offer you up as an example. I hope you don't mind. Um, no. as a fantastic example of a pivot or a spin-off, should I say, but uh, love to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so um, we had originally built, uh, I think you know this was Gifts Us Ordinary on the Magento platform, and um, Ross, who's one of our co-founders, he actually had built the original platform. And uh, Ross and I used to challenge each other in the early days when he was still at the agency side and saying, look, we need to do customizations. He said, no, you've got to kind of like, you've got to have one base currency, you've got to do this, the kind of like the platform doesn't allow it. Anyway, over time, I persuaded him to do a lot of customizations on the site. And of course, then the site no longer became fit for purpose. It was kind of like causing a lot of re-indexing issues. And the realization was that, you know, um, it, it was too difficult to support. Like if you want to deliver something that is kind of like multi-region, multi-logins, you know, the way e-commerce should be, it was too hard on what we currently had. And we had a support agency here as well, um, who then turned around to us one day and said, we can no longer support your platform, it's too complex. And he said, and I said, so, so you, in terms of not gonna support it, are you gonna support it from any capacity? No. And I said, but you're basically pulling, you're basically telling me my business is gonna to have to go under. There's nothing we can do, it's too complex, we can't support this. And I remember exact time I had that call and I was outdoors and I felt like the walls were just kind of enclosing in. Yeah. 
And I thought to myself, you either have a choice here. You either have to accept that somebody's told you that this isn't possible or you kind of build this yourself and you do it from scratch. So together with um, Ross, who was our CTO at the time, who was a co-founder of the Magento Agency back in the UK, along with two other developers who I'd worked with very closely in Singapore and previous projects, we came together, the four of us, and we built a solution that was the solution that we required. And at that point, we replatformed um, Gifts Less Ordinary. But that took a, a, a time for us to realize, you know, when I got that news, you either crumble and you think, we can't go any further. We cannot invest, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars into re, re, you know, replatforming. It doesn't make sense. Um, even though Gifts Less Ordinary was making seven figures in revenue plus, it wasn't, you know, a marketplace. It's hard to make it kind of like, you know, profitable unless you kind of have the further investment and you really scale that business up. So it was, you know, for us, it was, you know, what do we do? And we made that difficult decision to re-platform and it was a cost to us, the business, it's a huge risk, but we wanted to do it right. And I wanted to promise that, you know, at that stage, I would never let any other business down the way I was let down. And I think there's something so powerful in terms of like, if you're a tech company, you deliver upon kind of like what your customer promises are. If you take a client on board, you make sure that client's successful. So after a year and a half, we basically built the technology um, and we, you know, scoped it. So I'm not the techie person. I have a team of technical people, but I'm the very commercial person. So often a lot of the times we kind of debate about what should be, what shouldn't be. And they say, well, it's too hard. If it's too hard, then build it. <laughs> and that's the way we go about it. Um, so you can, and, and Tanya knows, she knows our team very well about the debates that we have. But we built a very, very robust solution. And then we happened to be at a um, conference in Rise in Hong Kong. And we met, um, and, and Tanya, you were there with me at this point. I saw the video um, t- yesterday, actually, from, you remember the guy interviewing you? It was very, it was, it was great. Uh, it brought back some great memories. It was a good right. conference. It was a very good conference. And um, coincidentally, we had um, HSH, um, the, who um, owned the Peninsula Hotel Group, come up to us and said, we love what you've built. Like, how do you have an e-commerce solution that allows for you to kind of have multi-storefronts on one site? Um, is that something that you could license? So we had a number of different discussions um, with them over a course of about a year. And we decided that we, working together, we were going to license our technology and build a solution that kind of supported what they needed, which was an e-commerce platform that allowed for multiple hotel properties to be situated on one centralized platform. But each of these properties could have their own team access. So for instance, the Hong Kong team could manage their storefront, manage their logistics, manage their orders. The Beverly Hills team could manage their um, independent storefront. But all in analytics, all insights were held within one centralized platform. So we like to kind of coin this collaborative e-commerce because it's about bringing multi-platforms, multi-properties on one storefront but delegating controls and user access at a localized level. So we leveraged all the knowledge that we had on what worked within e-commerce to bring that success to the um, hospitality sector. The Money Makers Podcast is brought to you by Sophia, the place for women to learn, invest and change the world. Sophia is an education platform for women, providing much-needed courses on personal finance and investing, with a goal to increase diversity and inclusion in early-stage investing. Go to sophiawomen.com and use promo code PODCAST10 to receive a 10% discount on all of our courses.
Can you just run through what some of those complexities were that your previous agency did not want to deal with? Yeah, so the, the core was um, having these kind of like multi-storefronts is one thing, but having multi-storefronts that each storefront has their own independent payment gateway and that allows for different payouts in different regions was something they wouldn't support. So for instance, they would always conform to, you know, you need one base currency. So your main currency is USD typically. And then what you do is you have to use different exchange rates or, you know, the different pricing in different regions. Now that doesn't work. Like if you're a hotel client or hospitality client, or even like with, with us, you want to ensure that your rates and your pricing is fixed to the local market needs. Right. You want to be able to say, a storefront is not just about using a translator tool or using a different base currency. It's about each storefront should have its own unique content. It should have be able to be translated in its own language, not using a, a language translator, but actually hard-coded into its own language. It should be able to be created um, locally. Um, all of the content, all everything, and you know, being able to adapt that to local nuance of the market. Now, with hotels and specifically, you want to, who knows your customers better than your local teams, your local properties? You want to give them the controls that they can go in. They can manage like local um, promotions. So maybe one day you're doing a mooncake festival or one day you're doing Father's Day in, in different regions and you're being able to support those unique occasions. And your local properties want to feel that they're empowered enough to say, I can manage the e-commerce storefront. I'm going to make sure it's relevant. But at the same time, central, the central team want to ensure there's brand consistency, there's kind of like overarching controls. And that is what our core solution allows for. So the other thing within each of these properties, you might have um, the, one of the, our key USPs is that we built out a multi-product checkout. So at the moment, you'll see a lot of hotels who have a single standalone hotel solution. Like, and what they'll do is say, OK, my F&B is supported by this third party site. My products are supported by this site. Gift vouchers and experience are supported by a different platform. They've got multiple logins, basically very fragmented. So what we do is we, um, and I believe we are the, the only e-commerce solution out there that supports this. Our checkout basket supports multi-product types with multi-logic. So I can have an F&B food delivery ordered from a hotel to deliver sort of at 12 to 1 tomorrow. I can then send a digital gift voucher, Tanya, direct to you. I can then have a product um, coming through directly from the spa to arrive in three, four days' time, because that's what I've chosen. Um, and in addition, we also support third parties. So let's say if you wanted to do a collaboration with the likes of um, like a great brand like Molten Brown or a bedding company, they can then sell their products on your site to generate incremental revenue streams, and they would ship direct to your customers. So it's very, very adaptable and it allows for the kind of like, it's really thought through these, the complexities that surrounds hospitality, you know, multi-teams, multi-products. But, you know, from a user experience, what makes sense is to have that very seamless transition where you have, um, you know, I want to go and visit, let's say, a hotel.com website. I want to go and visit their shop site or the gifting site that's embedded onto their platform. I don't want to feel like I've left that hotel. I still want to be part of their domain. And when I go through, I want to be able to add all these great products in one basket and then check out. I have one checkout process. The last thing I want to do is go, oh, I have to go here for food. I have to go here for gift vouchers, or I have to go to this one for, to get my mooncakes delivered. 
and you know as a result you can see it, it it's the right experience from a customer journey it's kind of like you know it makes a very seamless transition and it's also the ability for us to for hotels to upsell and again everything insights analytics or everything's in one place you're not outsourcing that to third parties the control is when you own that data you can basically you can um innovate and i think then you can look at like what works in one hotel have you thought have you thought about this leverage those learning the power is you owning that brand don't give that that power away to a third party i love this story in a way that's so hard to explain it basically touches on so many parts of a real like entrepreneurial spirit you saw a problem with glo right you wanted to solve yourself yeah and you went to somebody who said, this can't be done. This has to be the light bulb moment going off over your head with the response of, oh, really? And again, it sounds very similar to what you did at PT, right? It's the same example. You want to go join that group? You're insane. Well, maybe I am and maybe I'm not, but let's see who's right in three months with what you gave yourself the first time. It was probably a little bit longer the second time because it was more complex. Do you see, and, and I just love the fact that it's both of them have, have been successes. And this is really hard work particularly from an entrepreneurial standpoint, right? Because you're resource constrained at every level and that just makes things much harder, yeah? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And the other thing is you built this platform originally as a gift platform. You wanted to, it sounds to me like you wanted to build this thing so that people could get differentiated gifts. I wonder often why, like when, as the world becomes more and more boutiqued, you know what I mean? You go to every country and there's the same Prada store. So boring. But also they don't do what you're talking about. They don't localize it. In my mind, most businesses are really local. Hotels are the perfect example of this, right? You can't have Mother's Day in Indonesia on the same day that you have it in the United States, right? And like New Year's is different everywhere. So what are we really celebrating kind of thing? And you're building a platform that gives you that level of flexibility. I guess my follow-on to all of this is what else can the platform be used for? Because when you first started doing it, you talked about collaborative e-commerce. Well, you can call hotels e-commerce because... It's electronic and it's commerce, but it's not what people think about when they think about e-commerce, yeah? Yes, absolutely. And again, that wasn't the original idea, but boy, it works super well, yeah? How can it be used in ways maybe now that you have started to see that you didn't see at the beginning? So it's really interesting is that what our core is as well is, is a marketplace. Yeah. So our core is kind of like being able to have multi-vendor, like multi-products. Where we see this industry going is um, hospitality brands don't want to push, like luxury hospitality brands. They're really, it's really important that they offer the kind of like, you know, the, the, the right products. They're seen to be on the right marketplaces and they're seen to be with people who kind of understand and respect what their core brand values, like customer service, right. excellency is everything. Now, what we had seen before was a lot of these hotels originally, when obviously um, in the pandemic, they kind of jumped and thought, right, I've got to go and be on this kind of like this third party F&B site. Now, when you're not in control of that last mile, that is very difficult for you to control that level of service. Exactly. Like luxury brands want to own that whole last mile. So for us, we're looking at, we are looking at in terms of like, you know, logistics integration, like, you know, being able to have be that kind of like that, that trusted provider. But we're also that helping to support. So where we see this going forward is we want to create like an ecosystem, an ecosystem where we can help hospitality brands with their products, push them out into new audiences. And for us to do that, become kind of like the aggregator where we work with selective um, curated. brands. Curated, exactly. And then it's up to the hotels. Do you want to feature on this platform? Do you want to feature on that platform? If so, you can kind of sync it across. And because we enable marketplaces, 
we enable, you know, a, a well-created marketplaces, then you can kind of like be able to kind of like push products onto different platforms to help generate different audiences and different awareness. Yeah. So that's where we, where we see this going. There's so many things we are working with within the hospitality that we see as great opportunities, like event kind of like bookings, you know, there's a lot to build on to even improve our product even further and a lot of it's driven by working with the hotels and we work in partnership with them like we if they have a problem we want to solve that problem and i think that's why they like us because we say right you know what what you're dealing with if we did it this way and we introduce that as an enhancement to our overall SaaS platform it's going to benefit all of our clients and it's going to generate significant revenue streams and you know that, that that's kind of like where our core is we want to be that that partnership for them to help deliver results, increase conversions and drive incremental revenue um, where they never thought it was possible before. Do you see hospitality as the, the core of your future at TechAssembly? Yes, we do. We do. Yeah. The hospi- hospitality is at a core, but hospitality also expanding into marketplace hospitality as well or empowering marketplaces because that's something that we do very well um, generally. So at the moment, the hospitality is what we are 100% focused on. And the reason being is because, you know, we see there's a huge opportunity for these brands to make a difference. Like, and you, you look at the retail luxury space, like these hotels are experiential brands, they're luxury brands. People come to them because they trust in them. They expect a, stand, a consistent standard of service. As soon as they kind of like push into kind of like to the retail space, they're a huge threat for luxury retail. Um, and what we want to do is help to kind of like to enable that for them, to help them push and pivot into new, into new ways. Hospitality, they will be, they are so, they have been so adaptable over this period. They will be the key success in 2022 plus. And that's because they've been so adaptable to kind of like, like what's happened to them. Like, you know, with, with and, and also with resourcing constraints and everything else, they've managed to pivot, to think clever, smart. How do we want to run our e-commerce going forward? We don't need multiple platforms. We need to be smarter about how we do e-commerce. And we need to be kind of like much more, um, you know, a seamless, integrated approach. And that's what TechAssembly does and, and offers at our core. You've seen that from the start, right? You've seen how at the beginning of the pandemic, because of the hotels were mostly just selling rooms, right? They yeah. hadn't thought about these, you know, different revenue streams, multiple revenue streams. And now I'm guessing, you know, 19, 20 months on, you're seeing a very different way of thinking, Absolutely. which is serving you very well. Yeah, and I think what we've done is we've worked with the hotels. So when we go into hotels, we work at the group level. So we tend to take, if a hotel group has 40 hotels or 100 hotels, we, we tend to work at the group level to be able to offer the platform. And what we do is we make sure that, you know, everything is integrated. They don't have to work across multiple logins. If they want to be pushed out into third-party marketplace, we can support them. But it's really important that we take it at a group level because the group brands want to be able to ensure that they retain control and retain consistently high quality brand value. We've spent so many years in building an e-commerce solution that is robust, but most importantly, secure. Like we're all ISO certified. Like before we even onboarded one client, it took us like nine months of making sure the technology was secure and fit for purpose. And that is kind of like something that's very, very key for us. You see a lot of pop-up kind of like um, e-commerce stores and sites but, you know, how are they managing your data? Have the security process in place? For us, that is paramount. And that's something that, you know, it's taken us a long time sometimes working with these clients. Like we've just signed a couple of big, big groups um, in the last couple of weeks. 
And with these clients, some of them have taken like nine months to a year's negotiation. But, you know, that's it's important and it's important to get it right. Do you find or have you found with some of these big luxury experiential brands, as you mentioned, that they had been having platform fatigue for the platforms on which they were already situated and that the necessity to curate right, meant that there was too much noise on the other platforms and not enough signals for consumers that actually wanted to use their brands and that their brands were getting mixed up with other brands that maybe were not at the same level. Exactly. Yeah. And also diluted their brand value. Yeah. So the last thing, if you are a luxury brand, you want to associate yourself with other luxury groups. And I think sure. what you're seeing a lot of, particularly with kind of like these um, F&B marketplaces, they're, they're great in terms of like, you know, a quick win. They take a 30% commission sometimes. Um, others are, are different. But your brand, your, your products are being diluted by others. And they might not be the same quality, not be the same standard as you. Um, customers come to your hotel.com or your brand.com site because they trust you. Right. Um, so, you know, having that, your products available through those kind of like on your hotel.com site, they expect that same consistent quality of service that they've trusted from you for the last 10 plus years. And do you see the same opportunity for existing e-commerce companies like Prada, like Chanel, you know, like Polo Ralph Lauren that have sites, but that don't have the same sort of flexibility and localization possibilities that TechSembly offers? In other words, the hospitality groups have noticed this right away. They, Like you said, they had the biggest challenges in the last 18 or 19 months because most of their business went to zero, close to zero. So they had to go through all of this innovation process. But if you now go to a business like, just because you mentioned it, Prada, and you can literally localize their business, do they see the benefits of that as well? Or have you not even tried to sell to them yet? To be honest, we've been very much more focused on the hospitality and the marketplace as our, as our core. But you're absolutely right in that there is a significant value in that. So where we, I guess, where we are best is when it's like a multi-property um, or multi-team. So yep. if, they have, um, if they have teams in more than one location and they want to empower those teams to manage, so a great example is a distributor. So a distributor might like kind of like a luxury watch distributor might, might have kind of like be selling in, in Singapore, Indonesia, into Thailand. Now, they would want each of those independent um, stores who basically um, who have their product inventory at a store level to manage and control those storefronts. That is where our solution is very good as well, because we allow for different teams to have different um, user rights and permissions and to manage storefronts. But at the same time, you still retain and own brand.com. So you can imagine a scenario, you as a, as a luxury brand, you're working with a distributor in Japan. The distributor in Japan sets up, let's say your, your we'll take Prada as an example, obviously, but your, your Prada Japan site. Um, and then all of a sudden you have a fallout with that distributor. That distributor then um, has the domain, the site that they've, they've set up. That's not owned by you. The, so the control has been diluted. You're not getting the insights, you're not getting the analytics. Whereas if you're on the TechSembly platform, it's one centralized platform. You can turn off that Japan store. You can allocate that to a different distributor. But all the value and everything that you've built up, the SEO, the kind of that customer data is still retained by you. It accrues to you. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So do you think about the agency that told you that it wasn't possible every now and then as you continue to build possible? Of course, I I, I do. Yeah, I have a long memory. (laughs) (laughs) I think that the truth is as well, though, it goes back is I think I... I've learned 
in life that lots of people will tell you no and you can't do something and I think my kind of my husband would call it my stubbornness is well actually you can <laughs> um, and I think the truth is I remember a very early age I, you know I was um, even at, at school I remember the age of 14 I was kind of had my head in the clouds as people would say it like I was an idea person I wasn't very academic I wasn't like you know spending time studying and I remember being this 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 moment when I had a career counselor who said to me at age 14 you know I said where do you want to go I said I don't know I said you know my, I see my mom working in business I've decided I'm going to do business and I've you know it's in Scotland I've decided I'm going to go to Strathclyde University which is supposed to be the best business school in Scotland and he laughed at me <laughs> and he said well, actually, I don't think you, I think you should maybe reconsider and think about whether you want to drop out and go to beauty school. And at that point in time, I remember, and I will always really? remember it. Yeah, really. Yeah. And I, I remember thinking to myself, I, I can't quite remember what I said, but I did end up in detention. Um, <laughs> but I can guess. <laughs> but the point was, it stayed with me. And yeah. when I said, right, well, that's where I'm going I'm going to go to that university and not only am I going to go to that university I'm going to make sure I get my graduate scheme so actually sometimes sometimes I like it when people tell me no you can't do that because that's kind of like what fuels me you just you know it it, it drives me and I yeah. think that's so important for everybody nowadays so you'll always get no's like that that's just the way of life but as long as you believe in yourself and you believe in what you're building you can make it happen yeah, I, I really believe that the world is separated at, at scale into two types of people those that always answer no without thinking first for some reason, maybe it's just too hard for them to get their head around or they just don't want to do it. And those who say yes and figure stuff out. And I know that's a massive generalization, but it's hard for me to deal with people that are constantly saying no, right? Yeah. How about give me more information? Yeah. How about let's try it first? Because even if it doesn't work, at least we learn something along the way. I mean, in a way, Gifts Less Ordinary is the perfect example, right? Like you said, it was reaching this certain scale, but then you had to figure something else out. But if you weren't in the game, you were never going to figure that out, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not the end result. It's the journey that matters. And I think, you know, what I've learned um, along the way, no one could take that away from you. You exactly. know, you learn to be resilient. Yeah. You learn to kind of be adaptive, uh, adapt to kind of like, you know, challenges. And you think to yourself, there's nothing that I can't overcome until another obstacle comes. And you go, right, let's focus, think outside the box. How do we tackle this one? Let's, let's move on. And, you know. And that's kind of, you know, that's part of the fun. And I know entrepreneurial, it, it, being an entrepreneur is very, very hard. I mean, I, I think Tanya sometimes see me that, you know, where it's kind of like, you know, like when we started Gifts Us Already in the early days and all this happened with the technology, like, you know, I was worried about how do I pay staff salaries next month. I mean, right. you have to go through that. And I think if you don't go through that, you don't really kind of like, you know, learn to be that kind of like adaptable. It, it, it is a journey. It's a journey. And I, I wouldn't change it because despite sometimes it being, you know, very challenging and, you know, I love it. It's like, you know, running a marathon, you get that buzz. And so when you face an obstacle, it actually gets me more excited than anything. Cause I've got to think to myself, just think of a way around this. Think about this differently. Yeah. I mean, it is a marathon, right? It is. It really is. It's not a sprint. It's definitely a marathon. And I've only run a half marathon to be fair, but you know, when you get to that 15th, 16th kilometer, you're thinking I'm done, but you're not because yeah. you got five more to go. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Anyway, I want to thank Amy Reed, a co-founder and CEO of TechAssembly, for doing this today. You were awesome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Tanya, for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And it's, yeah, I've really enjoyed the chat. So thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Money Makers Podcast, brought to you by Sophia. 
the education platform for women that increases diversity in early stage investing. Visit sophiawomen.com and use promo code PODCAST10 to receive a 10% discount on all our courses. Learn, invest, and change the world.